Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. I'm Pete Wright, and welcome to a lesson in lighting evildoers. That's how you do it. Today, we are mm-hmm. talking about Minute 29, which begins with Dr. Zola interrupting Schmidt's portrait session and ends with Zola asking if he should give the order. Back on the show, we have the Doctor of the Dead himself. It's Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. Hello. Hi. Good to be back. Good to be back here in uh, Hydra headquarters. Uh, of course, we're back in Schmidt's office lab, way up high in the mountains in the Alps. And uh, let's let's start talking some Wagner here. Opera. Are you I, either of you fans of opera? No. Uh, you know, I, I was a huge fan of Kill the Wabbit. Is that <laughs> that counts? Does it, does it count? Sure I think I was I was a big fan of of that. That's why I I, I learned. <laughs> learned a little bit about opera and uh then promptly stopped learning about opera it's not really my jam i was a i was a singer in a past life and so i had to perform certain you know operatic tracks as exercises and i don't care for it thanks for reminding me by the way about what's opera doc because that's (laughs) one of the other things for me if I if I was exposed to opera at all in a significant way as a kid, it would have been that and uh, Marx Brothers Night at the Opera. That's it. There we go. I think that's the key for for me too. Where it's like I can I can um, handle watching opera. I've like I've I've sat through a few like uh, Ingmar Bergman operas, uh, like operatic films, and I just I I find it a difficult um, format for me to really connect with, and so. Uh, it is definitely the things like what's opera doc or, uh, you know, we were talking before the show, uh, things like Black Swan, which integrate uh, something like a ballet into the the movie as as kind of part of the story. And so I feel like I handle that better. And, and when it comes to opera, I know key opera pieces, but kind of sitting through it, I I, I struggle with a little bit. I, I, you know, it's just not for me. I know there are plenty of great operas out there and I don't want to, uh, you know, you know, say anything too bad about them because I know there are plenty of great opera fans and, uh, you know, more power to them. It's just not for me. But uh, one thing I do like about Wagner is how big they are. And you you see Wagner used in such interesting ways because the opera music is so big. And here we come in as uh, Zola walks into the, the lab here. We have an opera piece playing. It is, Ein Schr- uh, I'm not going to say it. It's scene three. From uh, the Valkyrie, my father promised me a sword. Is the is the piece that we come in on? It's the first day of the stage festival uh, in the first act. That's where we come in on, and then interestingly, it transitions to the the funeral march. Uh, got a twilight from Goddardamerung, Twilight of the Gods, the third procession. So. I feel like they wanted to have Wagner in here, but they wanted to have a few key moments. And and we come in on this big singing here, uh, which is it's big and it feels very operatic and it fits with kind of what we're seeing. But then as we get to the conversation toward the end of the minute, as they're talking about having found Erskine and, uh, you know, should we move forward with the plans? It The music kind of takes on a little bit more of a menacing tone. It's kind of like these little kind of creepy sounds. And I feel like that's kind of where the funeral march, uh, they they just, it felt like they wanted to blend them together to do that. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, I don't think I ever would have been able to 
uh, figure that out on my own without having, you know, looked at the credits, gone through these tracks and tried figuring out what they were playing. A lot of opera research. Yeah. Does that mean then, because I, I was just following what, what you're dissecting there about how the music is used, does that mean then that it doesn't make any logical sense when you watch the scene then? Like that's playing, it it shouldn't be playing like that. Yeah, I mean he's he's like, he's not flipping the record. <laughs> it's it's right, like right. It, it really doesn't fit at all the fact that uh, that he's doing these two choice, pieces. Though. Yeah, well, it's it's two different pieces. It's Gotterdammerung, um, which is twi- uh, Twilight of the Gods, and then it's the Valkyrie, and so it's it's two completely separate, um, from my understanding, two completely separate operas. I may be misinterpreting. You no, you're not misinterpreting, but actually, it it is interesting. The uh, the Valkyrie and Gotterdammerung are parts two and four of what is called the Ring Cycle. So, in fact, it's a 17 hour operatic cycle consisting of four operas. And Holy so, cow. the fact that these two are at least together, <laughs> and often, like you know, when you when you hear them performed, they'll be over the course of four nights. Like you don't have to sit through 17 hours. I was going to say nobody opera. has time for that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, no, but but it but it is like. It, it it's essentially the rings the ring operatic universe that's that's what we're talking about here and these are two tracks from numbers 2 and 4 of the four of them wait so so did wagner put together the first um operatic universe is this like a prequel to cinematic universe yes yeah, that is i just did that i just did that you're welcome you're welcome world wagner's operatic universe look at mm-hmm. that that's fantastic and it's w o u whoa <laughs> it's not wow <laughs> Sometimes Whoa. stuff just it just happens just right off the dome. Mm-hmm. Whoa, that's gonna stick. You're amazing. It's amazing that you. You just have to commit that. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly <laughs> what you're doing. I appreciate that. Uh, I do. I do like that they. I mean, maybe opera fans would note that there was kind of a shift in the music. Um, it seems to me that you know, for the layperson like me who hears it, I'm not picking up on that. So to me, it just feels very much like something that fits well with what we're tuning in for. That explains all those stories we heard back then of the older people walking out of the theater during that scene <laughs> because they were just so offended they? by the illogical cutting of the Wagner music. <laughs> it's like, I'm done with this movie. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, I, I want to ask you both about Zola as he walks in here. So he's he's walking into the lab fairly uh, with a uh, with a fast clip. You know, he's kind of he's got something to talk about with uh, with Schmidt. And then he kind of slows and pauses as he's looking to see what's happening. Uh, he sees we don't see it yet, but we see that he sees the portrait and what is happening. And he sees uh, Schmidt up standing in front of the window if you look very carefully when Schmidt turns the light switch off, um, you get a tiny, tiny flash, like one frame of the actual Red Skull face before he goes into silhouette. And I think it's very interesting. Um, but uh, what what do you think about this moment? Has Is has, is this something that's new to Zola? Has he never she- seen Schmidt this way? Or is it just like because Schmidt's always wearing his his man mask that uh, he's he's just kind of not used to it. Um, I, I was like, why is it? Why is he have this moment of pause here? I, I totally struggle with this every time because I would have thought that them working in partnership is going to be uh, it would be something um, of uh, that. They would have that more intimate relationship between them that they would he would know already who he's working with Zola. But 
in this case, not only does he attempt to hide himself, where he has already revealed himself to his painter, um, and and not Zola, apparently, but then he unveils himself in a moment that doesn't feel dramatic to me. He just turns on the light, right? And so I, I find that uh, interesting. I've never, I've never, this is like many things. This has happened a lot where we've talked about <laughs> I never really thought much about that, um, but it occurs to me, I don't know that I ever thought that he hadn't seen him before. I think, and I might be wrong, but I think I think it more speaks to the kind of power dynamic they have between the two of them. Zola's obviously very afraid of him. He's working for the kind of guy who's so mercurial he could decide any minute to shoot you. You know, like you don't know what's going to happen. He's he's treading a fine line here, you know, every time he talks to him. And clearly, despite it doesn't make sense, really, it's illogical, but he's a villain, so it doesn't have to. Despite the fact that his persona, you would argue, would be something he's probably proud of, and it does seem like he acts that way. It does seem like there might be an element of shame or or discomfort sometimes with revealing himself. And it might be that the two of them have often had to interact in ways where Zola can't acknowledge that he's like, I, I see what you look like. And it's weird, you know, so I feel <laughs> like it's more about the fact that the two of them have this power relationship and he's very nervous around him and. Red Skull kind of likes to keep himself in shadow and and Zola's trying to act like that's not a thing. You know, this is fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's cuz it's like he walked in on him like you know posing nude for a portrait right. or something because exactly. even the way that that Schmidt says is the something in particular you need like he's it's almost like he's a little uncomfortable too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and I get a I get a feeling of shame, even though, again, like I said, it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to. He could have both at the same time. He's proud of it, but also he's uncomfortable about it. Yeah. And yet he's also having someone paint him. So, you know, don't you think that's weird? Like, that's the place where we get vulnerability from Schmidt. Like what he is Red Skull. It's a whole purpose is him exuding this power through demonstrating fear. Why is it? in this moment of artistry that there is vulnerability in his character. I find that kind of bananas. Although, I mean, you know, he's being painted and, and, you know, there's that whole idea of like, you know, the, the, the portrait artist is trying to capture the person and it's like a lowering of barriers, which is probably unusual for a man like that to, to feel like he's in that position, which by the way, leads to something else about the painter, which I think is the next minute. So I'll save that, but. It's kind of a Sam Raimi reaction shot of the painter that we get here. Like, it just feels like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very brief. Like, like yeah, he's like, uh, he feels like somebody who's being forced to do this. Like, he's very, he seems uncomfortable. It's it's great. Oh, and, yeah. And I love how he's got, like, a palette just with all red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a great little moment. Uh, this is a weird, uh, mo- a weird thing to suddenly think about, but... Do we think that, uh, do we ever see any other part of Schmidt's body other than his head? Like, his hands, I think, are always gloved. So, do you think that they were trying to perhaps, instead of just like, well, it's weird that he just has a red skull. Let's just say all of him is this way, and he now has to cover up the only part of him that that is exposed, which would be his head. Could be. Is that something that, that like... uh 
you think that they thought of? Like, do you think he's all red? I mean, it's a possibility, I guess. It's really I, interesting. Is he like the mask? He's like Jim Carrey. It's just red until it fades into skin. Is that how it works? Well, uh, where would the skin be? Like, that's what, yeah, because, well, I'm just wondering if he has any. He's all red. I, I feel like maybe he's just all red. He's not just a red skull. He's a red person. He's a red person. Wow. You know, that's the other thing, too, by the way, that fits back with my idea of uh, his sense of his self. I mean, because ultimately, again, drop all the, the Hydra dancing around the truth kind of crap. He's a Nazi. <laughs> so yeah. they, they, they're they based entirely on the master race idea, except he's not anymore, is he? Because he's a red skull and, like, as you point out, potentially red all over. He is not the Aryan ideal anymore. <laughs> and yet... In his head, he still has to believe that, and he still has to act as a leader. And maybe that's where the shame and the discomfort and everything comes from, is that he knows that he's no longer the image of the very thing that he feels in his heart he is and has to represent. Huh. And so there's, it's he's become a monster, and he can't acknowledge that or it ruins everything that he thinks. Yeah. There, I, I deconstructed the Red Skull psychology. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you could. Yeah, I can make that case. I can. I can get on board with that. It's. I. He's an interesting character, and this this scene is such an interesting one. The way that it plays out, the way that um, it's this interruption, and I, the other the other thing I had a, a note of is the fact that there's the, obviously, as we find out, that he has been looking for Doctor Erskine and has found him. But what's interesting is like when Zola comes in. Um, he clearly is coming in because he had heard this. He had heard that he had found that that Schmidt had found Erskine and they were, um, you know, what was the next steps? But when he comes in, it's like it's like uh, Schmidt has forgotten that because he's like, did you need something? Why, why are you here? It's It plays so strange. This scene is such a strange scene. I mean, I really enjoy the scene, but it's just every time I watch it, especially as I really kind of uh, study it perhaps too much, I, I find like I'm asking all these questions. I'm like, what is this weird interaction between these two here? Well, it also, um, I guess this goes into the next minute, though, so I can't really connect it entirely yet but it also goes to the fact that in a way it looks like he's not really letting zola in on everything and he's kind of cutting him out of the action yeah so you know he's on a need-to-know basis for a lot of stuff for whatever reason that's i mean that's a good good point like what is zola's role i mean we know his role is to like you know, figure out the science of the Tesseract and kind of, you know, it, he's going to use it to kind of enhance all of the weapons and the the designs that he has had. But I mean, is is he kind of stepping out of his zone as far as what he's supposed to be focusing on by even talking to him about about Erskine? I mean, it could be. And it could be the fact that uh, Zola, like all of them, is power hungry and Maybe he wants a little bit more than he's got. And so there might even be an undercurrent of a power struggle there between the two of them. So he's keeping Zola at arm's length. Like, you deal with your bit, but you don't need to know the other stuff I'm doing. And that could be what's going on. Yeah, there's an element. Uh, what I like about Zola is, to a certain extent, he feels like the new Erskine. Like, we saw in the flashback uh, in the last few minutes how uh, how schmidt had had really wanted this serum from erskine and kind of uh 
led to a point where uh, he, I don't know, now we know Erskine fled and has just been rediscovered. But Zola is kind of the new Erskine. He's the new Darth Vader for the Emperor, right? He's he's the new number two, and he's kind of helping him out. And But he's really there to kind of do the science and kind of, you know, uh, make all of the plans uh, work. And so I, I, I think it is an interesting thing that there perhaps is maybe a little bit of uh, jealousy, too. Like, he's got that jealous sense that, you know, you know, I'm the guy right now doing your science for you, right? Why are you looking for him? It's an interesting, an interesting perspective for sure. That is uh, that is interesting. And it, one, can you imagine if uh, Darth Vader were as wealthy as Zola is in this movie? That would have been a different take. And two, <laughs> it, it gets to part of the the level of commitment that seems to waver. And we've talked about this before. Like, what is Zola really in? into it for, right? Is he into it as a, a measure of subservience, as a measure of, of allegiance to Schmidt? Or is it possible that he just wants to make sure he's on the inside because he is truly uh, stunned by the science and wants to be a part of it? And I think that's that's also a piece that is, is at work in this. He doesn't, like to your point, he doesn't want to be left out, but he also might not be wholly evil at this point. He just loves the power of the science and doesn't want it to get too far away from him. I, I think that that's a lot of it. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy the idea that he is this person who's, I mean, we I, we kind of got that sense that he seemed a little nervous when they were first playing with the Tesseract and, and like it was doing all of this crazy stuff. And he was like freaked out that, that uh, Schmidt wanted to crank it up to 11. Uh, but then once it actually worked, he, you know, it's like his eyes got so big. He's, he's all his eyes are saucers. Yeah, he might as well have been rubbing his hands together and, and twirling a mustache. You know, he was so excited about what he was going to be, be able to do with all of his designs and everything. So uh, so I, there is an interesting element to that for sure. I also think it's uh, I, I, I love the way that the scene plays out where he says, I don't see why you need to concern yourself. I can't imagine he will ever succeed. And then he kind of looks at, at Schmidt. And if you look, there's just ever so slight a cocking of, of Schmidt's head. And then Zola comes back with, uh, again, you know, the way that he delivers that is it's fantastic. I love that. And again, that's that to me is another thing about like there's there's this constant walking on eggshells with dealing with Schmidt that he's got to do. And by the way, my my opportunity to say the other person in this whole week Love Toby Jones. He's one of those kind of guys that when he shows up, he just makes everything better. I can't remember now the timeline of things, but I know that when I saw him, I think he'd already been on Doctor Who. He was he was in a really great Doctor Who episode. And then I was becoming more aware of him as a character actor and a lot of things. And around this time, it seemed like he was popping up everywhere. And when I sh- saw him show up in a Marvel movie, I was like, awesome, Toby Jones. And of course, <laughs> what's really great is it, it it winds up panning out pretty nicely for a variety of reasons, you know, beyond just this movie, which is really cool. So he's a great addition. Did you enjoy the way they, they ended up treating the Zola character? Like, did it did? I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. he's he's just a human here. But like the way that they kind of modified him for the later films, does, did that like, oh, that was actually kind of a clever way to kind of handle that comic. I love that. Yeah. I love the whole reveal of him. You know, there there are a lot of not that suddenly this becomes one of your later seasons. Not that there aren't a lot of problems with the idea that Hydra has just been running everything for decades. That, that has its <laughs> own issues. But but if you're going to do it, um, the way they used his character was a beautiful. That's a great example, by the way, of what we were talking about early this week. 
that was to me a great adaptation of the silly version of Zola that we know from the comics. It's like, all right, we're not going to have a robot walking around with a screen in his stomach, <laughs> but, but to do that was a beautiful way of grabbing some of that visual, some of that idea, and yet making it work really well in the story. And I love that they kept his character involved like that. It was great. No, it was, it was cool. And he's, he is so great. He does a great job. Uh, especially in scenes like this where he's kind of playing off of off of uh, Schmidt. So it's very fun. We do have another character here. We talked about him briefly, the the portrait artist. Uh, he's credited as uh, Johann Schmidt's artist. This is David McHale. I, I want to do a quick IMDb game with you two on David McHale. Uh, I probably, unless you are very familiar with him as an actor, I'll probably just tell you what the four films that IMDb says he is known for. Uh, do either of you want to guess or do you just want me to tell you? I sometimes pick out character actors and immediately remember them from a lot of stuff, but I'm not placing him. So I'll probably need to be told. Pete, what about you? I've got nothing. Well, he's definitely more of a TV actor, although he has been in a number of films. Um, and the the it, it ended up being this as his first known for. The second one is a show called A Touch of Frost, which is oh, okay. a, a, a British show, I believe. Yeah, yeah long-running yeah. British detective uh, drama. Right, a police, <laughs> uh, police show. And the third one is Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. He plays the minister. In that film. Oh, okay. And okay. last but not least, he is the fifth geographer in Paddington. <laughs> the fifth geographer. The yeah. fifth. I believe it's All a right. montage of geographers. I oh, gosh, I can't remember now. I we'll we'll be talking about that in the next reel um, oh. soon. So I'll, I'll be able to try it. We're gonna have to look for him, Pete, when we talk yeah, about that. For sure. Um, but yeah, it's kind of fun to uh, see. But yeah, I mean, you look at his his uh, TV work is he is very robust in TV and uh, hmm. has done a lot of stuff. He did pass away, uh, sadly, uh, at the end of 2021. Um, uh, okay. But uh, he had kept uh, he had kept quite busy. So a very fun little part here that he has. I enjoy him. Uh, immensely in this uh you know it's it's one of these potentially thankless roles because he's uh an artist who has no lines but the moments that he gets with his looks i think that you know he's given yeah. he's given some stuff to work with it's fun yeah straight up terrified i think it's the next minute has his has his moment that's like the moment that shows you that there are no small parts yeah exactly <laughs> yeah for sure uh, I like that the the folder that zola is holding he walks in with it says hydra optilung which means the Hydra Department, which I love the fact that the Nazis have it. It's just it's just another department. It's just the, yeah, the Hydra right. Department. There is a train of command straight to the Fuhrer. So funny. Which is exactly the point, right? Like, that's exactly what he's trying to, to uh, overthrow and obscure in the process. Yes, exactly. So good. Yeah. And I mean, it goes right back to the comics. I still remember the very first, like... Um, I think it's this. I, I, I'm sure there'll be somebody out there far, far clearer of mind than me. But I think it was like the '60s retelling of the origin story that they did as a flashback, where they showed him being picked originally by Hitler, and uh, and there's like the scene where like he just kind of like walks into Hitler's office from like a back door, and Hitler's like, ah! <laughs> <It's> like. <laughs> You're always around and, and let's go say something to him like, you know, ah, you're safe for now. And it's like, like he's already telling him, well, I'm going to take over. But, you know, so right. Like, at, at no point is the Red Skull subtle in, in his <laughs> dealings. Walks right to Hitler's room. 
doing that? <laughs> well, so sorry. It, it, he definitely, I don't know. I, I can see reacting the way that Zola does when you see it. Cause it's just like, it is just off-putting. It is just straight up off-putting to have you that way. Yeah. Well, and it's, and that's actually really funny because you think about the Red Skull dealing with Hitler as sort of Hitler's, the Red Skull is Hitler's Zola. Right. There's always somebody creepier who's just kind of lurking around, you know, and, and uh, the fact that Red Skull gets to be the uh, the aspirational sidekick to someone else in the world, I think, is really is really charming. Yeah. That's a piece we don't get to see in the movie. There, There is a scripted moment between Zola and uh, and Schmidt after uh, Schmidt kind of says that we found him where Zola says Berlin doesn't feel this is a proper use of their resources. And then Schmidt replies, and you are now their loyal servant. Berlin, if they care, can discuss it with me personally. Ah, interesting. There we go. An interesting little bit of tension between the two. That's more tension than we actually get spoken. Yeah, yeah right. right. Absolutely. Maybe yeah. they decided, you know, we already have this feeling of tension in the air. We don't necessarily need to drive the point home. Yeah. Big. yeah. And yeah. dramatic lighting, right? He gets the chance to, to display tension in shadow and light, and it's great. Oh, yes. That's what I was saying last time is that I love this set and it gives him that great opportunity to do that wonderful silhouette. And it's just uh, just fantastic. It's a great uh, hint because, I mean, it, you know, astute uh, film goers might have thought that they caught a flash of that Red Skull face when he first turns the lights off because it is there. But what I love about the way the scene plays out is you really get this sense that you're looking at the Red Skull, but you just can't see him. And it's just like you're it's driving you nuts because you keep looking at it like, is there a hint in there? Can I see? I love the way that they decided to first kind of play this. It's it's very clever and uh, mysterious. Yeah. So we get to these surveillance photos of Erskine that are laying on Schmidt's desk. Uh, they're square photos, which I thought was kind of interesting. We're going to talk about the photos uh, on the desk uh, in a sec. But one thing I love, one, there are Hydra logos everywhere. I just love that they are so obsessed with these Hydra logos that they just throw them everywhere. I love villains that know that branding is an important and essential part of the process. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, okay, but this is a good question for you, and we should ask more of our guests this. What do you think of the Hydra logo? Does it make sense to you to have a skull with a bunch of octopus tentacles, as opposed to a Hydra, which is a creature with a whole bunch of heads, which they even say, you know, cut one head off and, and two more grow in its place. Does the right. logo end up making sense to that end? Well, not really, but it's a it's a really cool logo. <laughs> it's a great logo because it's a great conflation of things like uh, Nazi iconography, like the SS and the skull and the Totem Cup. I mean, it, it's a good combination of stuff that looks like it would have been thought of and real, mixed with a little bit of the Marvel fanciful thing. And of course, that's been around for a long time, so it's a really cool idea. And really, you know. Who cares about logic when you got like a skull with tentacles that can reach <laughs> around the world? It's like death is spreading everywhere. It's a fantastic logo. The, the part that's silly is if you're truly trying to take over the world, and apparently, as we will later find out, doing it clandestinely for like 70 years, maybe don't put your logo on everything. <laughs> maybe don't advertise. You anything know. they are well branded. <laughs> but boy, <laughs> they really want that brand to be out there. I like to think that there's, uh, you know, a part of me that says, I think that they are trying to connect the Pirates of the Caribbean universe with the Marvel Cinematic Universe by saying that Davy Jones was actually the original <laughs> 
founder of Hydra, and he just they just put his skull on their their iconography. All right, I'm sold on that one. <laughs> Uh, one other thing on his desk before we get into the photos, the last note is that I like the bookends that um, that Schmidt has. I can't tell. They look like uh, some sort of four-legged animal. It makes me wonder if they are wolves going back to the whole thing with Odin. And we talked about his uh, ravens before, but also, yeah, the, the wolves. The wolves of Fenric kind of thing. I thought that might be an interesting – another element that he has trying to connect himself to this myth- mythology that he's been researching. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel terrible that I'd like, I, I love these things so much and I've spent so much time either talking about them, you know, on, on shows like this or writing about it. And yet as, as people close to me will attest, I'm one of the least observant people you'll probably ever meet. It's like, <laughs> I can watch something 400 times and I will never have seen the things on his desk. It's like, it's just invisible to me. It's weird. The things that I, that I focus on and the things that I don't, I have missed so many things, but it also means every time I revisit something, I, I like find something brand new because I never sure. saw it. Before. So. <laughs> right. Right. All right. Well, let's talk about these photos. We've got the surveillance photos of uh, Dr. Erskine that they had been taking on the streets of Brooklyn um, Square photos. Pete, you, you're a photographer. Did you do any research on cameras of the era that might be taking square photos? The cameras, it's, it's hard to say exactly what camera was, you know, in use, but the lines of the camera and the, the manufacturers, the Roloflex camera, um, the, the Roloflex lines, it was a German company, Franke and Heideke, uh, which was later changed to Rolliwerk. But those cameras are legendary. And for collectors today, getting these twin lens reflex cameras, uh, and having these in your collection is really, really fun because they, they are waste cameras, right? So they're top down viewfinders. So you hold it at your waist and you look down to to shoot and um, you know these are the cameras that were largely used by war photographers to document the war and so it, it it would not be a surprise to hear that they were using one of these old roloflex cameras with their their original glass like the carl zeiss lens you still hear uh like zeiss lenses are uh, still incredibly popular for they're just wonderfully machined pieces of kit and so um the uh you know these are this is likely the camera that you would you would be using uh in in fact robert kappa is one of the most famous uh war photographers world war ii and and he used what probably is the same camera to document the war that hydra is using in their spy work here so interesting yes okay and they were around. I mean, they they these were the cameras. This it, it's actually interesting that we start at the at the effectively the World's Fair because this camera was an award winning uh, a piece of of equipment at the World's Fair in 1937. This uh. like the Roloflex Automat camera, which which would have been um, shooting at this time. So I I think uh, I think that's a, a really cool line. And there's a lot of history on on these particular cameras. My hunch is that's what we're seeing. Well, there's something visually interesting. I guess we're just so used to photos that are, uh, you know, three by five or that kind of yeah. uh, that that sort of shape. 
um, where when you see square photos, it just it, uh, there's something striking about them. And I like that they use them here because it just it does make them feel different in some capacity. Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, a classic, the fact that they're, you know, you can you can see the artifacts of the development process on on each sheet. And I, I think that's really um, a fun and a classy addition to just such a quick moment. Yeah, even how some of them some of them look more black and white. Some of them are a little yeah. more reddish, almost like the the chemicals didn't set right or something. Yeah, they didn't yeah. didn't quite finish. Yeah, that's cool. Um, all right. Well, I don't think I have anything else uh, for this minute. We're going to come back and find out what the answer is to uh, Zola's question. Shall I give the order? What is Schmidt going to say? Um, all right. Any last thoughts from either of you about this minute? Uh, I'm good. Vinny. All right. Uh, well, uh, Arnold, would you like to remind everyone again where they can uh, track down you and more of the stuff that you're working on? Uh, you can hear my wife, Natalie, and I talk about all sorts of movies from horror and science fiction and beyond, many of them very bad and some of them very good <laughs> on our what's podcast, a, Fools in the House. What's an hmm? example of one of each? What's a bad oh, one that you talked about a good one? <laughs> well, we've talked about things like John Carpenter's The Thing and uh, most recently, actually, Alien. Um but we've also nice. talked about uh, some really terrible movies. Uh, can't remember if we talked about uh, the Chupacabra movie set at the Alamo or not. I know we watched it. <laughs> <laughs> There's some bad stuff out there, but also fun. So we try to cover the range. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I half expected you to say, well, we've watched The Thing and Alien, but we've also watched some good movies. And uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe if Arnold's going to come on here and be a provocateur, <laughs> now, we're going to change I'm, the show. <laughs> no, not in this case. I'm not. Because those are unassailable. Well, they didn't used to be, I guess. Well, one of them, anyway. Yeah. But right, uh, right. So that's schoolsinthehouse.com. And you can also uh, check out my publishing company at atvpublishing.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks as always. Uh, Pete, always a pleasure. Maybe we should try for a photograph instead of a painting. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.